Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning and happy Easter harvest. You know, what's interesting is, as I was growing up, um, we always said Merry Christmas and Happy Birthday, but I didn't grow up ever really hearing Happy Easter. And so when I started hearing it as an adult, it always struck me as a little odd. What's the big deal? Why is everyone so happy? But the more you think about it theologically, this ought to be one of the greatest calls to the world of, of, of the world filled with Christians and non-Christians alike. Reminding us that there is a hunger or a thirst or a deadness that settles over the human heart on a regular basis. And it needs resolution. It needs lifting. And what we celebrate on Easter is the beginning of all true joy and happiness. And if we're Christians, this is something we must believe, we must be convinced of in a fresh way every year. I think it should be one of the most joyful celebrations in all of the Christian calendar. And so I think it's right that at our church, while Good Friday service has a very solemn and serious mood to it, Easter Sunday always should be filled with joy and smiles and laughter. And if you're not in that place this morning, then it's my earnest prayer, and I've been really praying for this this week, that God would use His Word to awaken that in you. I wonder if I could get that clicker. You guys have it back there by any chance? <clears throat> and if in the meantime you would just flash those slides up. Um, the message this morning is called Seek the Lord. And somebody pointed out, um, Pastor Dave, I know you're in this 100 Things message series, but have you forgotten that it's Easter Sunday because it's rare to hear an Easter message out of a place like Isaiah 55. Thanks, Andy. Okay. Well, here's the thing. <clears throat> the sermon series happened to fall in such a way that Isaiah 55 was due up on this particular Sunday. And as I read and reflected on the passage, I realized how appropriate a text this is for the invitation that God wants to extend to us every year on Easter. And so the title of the message is Seek the Lord. And last night... Um, our family, we enjoyed a wonderful time of eating good food and enjoying fellowship with some friends of ours who go to this church. And we're reminded again that it's a really, really good thing to be invited into the home of somebody who really understands what the gift of hospitality is. You, you know the difference between being invited to a home uh, where you don't always feel like the, the door is physically open, but there isn't this embracing of you. And then there's times when you walk into a home and you sense that they've been waiting for you, preparing for you, and when they're opening the doors to you, you're not an afterthought or an unexpected interruption. You are the guest of honor. You are somebody whom they're opening not just their door or their table, but they're opening their hearts to you. And you feel welcomed in. You feel like friends are slowly becoming family. And when you experience that, when you come in, into the, the influence of somebody who has that gift of hospitality, there is a very warm and inviting feeling, and your own heart starts to open up. 
And because it's Easter Sunday, I don't know where you are right now with the Lord, but my guess is that we have a pretty broad range of where people are today sitting in this room. And some of you, you're almost bursting because first, Christ is risen, and second, everything you gave up for Lent, you can now gorge yourself on. I hope you won't do it. Uh, you know, in moderation, re-enter slowly, but some of you can eat an entire chocolate cake by yourselves today. Um, and so maybe that's the reason you're feeling a little giddy this morning. But maybe some of you are not in such a good place. The, the heaviness of Good Friday is still following you around. You feel like the cartoon character that has their own private little dark rain cloud that follows you everywhere you go. And somehow sitting here this morning, the joy of everything that you hear and see hasn't penetrated into your heart because there seems to be a disagreement between where you are and where everybody else seems to be. And if that's where you are, then this message is really for you. But even if you think that's not where you are, don't be too quick to confuse happiness with true joy. The the feeling of excitement with really being alive. Examine your heart to see if this message isn't really for you. I believe that the Lord is giving us an invitation in this passage, and he's giving it in a very generous and welcoming way. There is in this passage, in Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 11, a sense in which God is revealing himself to be a God who opens the door to people who are far away from him. Listen to what it says. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. God uses the very interesting imagery of thirst to call people to himself. And I think that's a very wise um, illustration to use. You know, there's this, um, there's, that picture really describes the way it feels when your heart or your soul is thirsty. You know, last night, I, I couldn't sleep at all, and it was around the middle of the night that I realized I, uh, I had two panic attacks. One was I forgot to post my slides to the website for the guys in the AV team. So that kind of woke me up. But I realized I was really tossing and turning. I was uncomfortable. And the more I thought about it, the the source of discomfort was my throat. It felt like something was grabbing my throat. And I realized, thinking back, I hadn't had anything to drink for like 10 hours. Right? And the thing is, it, it often doesn't occur to me to drink. I don't know why, but I'm a, I'm a creature of response. I, I don't eat at eating time or drink at drinking time. I just wait until my body goes, what is wrong with you? And then I put something in. And I realized maybe that's part of my, my problem with insomnia or constantly feeling uncomfortable is maybe I'm just really dehydrated a lot of the time. And one of you, if you're a doctor, can let me know if I'm on the right tra- trail here, but I think I'm dehydrated chronically. And if your soul is dehydrated, I'm going to tell you it's going to make itself felt in all kinds of ways. And so there are, there's this call out to those who feel this parched, cracked earth settling inside of them. 
And the invitation is made to two kinds of thirsty people. And by the way, do you know that thirst and hunger, they're not virtues and they're not diseases, okay? You know, we sometimes think, like when we say, I'm hungry for the Lord, that's a badge of merit. Like only the real good Christians are hungry for the Lord. But you know, hunger and thirst are not virtues and they're not problems. They are statements of observation. They're true conditions. We hunger when that which nourishes us has not come in for a long time. We thirst when that which wets and quenches and lubricates life has not been had in a long time. And so if you're thirsty and if you're hungry today spiritually, it's neither something to be proud of or something to be ashamed of. It's something to be aware of. It's something not to deny. Because if you can, if you can honestly own the hunger and thirst which exists in your life, you can actually begin to do something about it. And last night in the middle of the night, in that order, I first woke up and I posted all the slides to the website. And then I just drank the largest drink of water. It was like oil into a, an old car. Just glug, glug, glug. I had to get up several times after that because of all the water I drink. And with my age too. But, but you know, it was so satisfying to know that there was an answer to this feeling of unsettlement that had settled on me. So the first group that's thirsty are those who find that they're parched, but they're broke. They know they need something, but they don't know how they're going to get it. Everything that seems to satisfy their longings is out of reach. Some of you are right there today. You just feel not only thirsty, but completely broke. Your pockets are empty. You're like, where am I supposed to get anything? I got nothing left. Some of you, though, you're in the second group. It says, he who has no money come, but it also says, those who work and labor, but you end up buying things which are neither food nor drink. The second group of thirsty people are those who are self-sufficient. They are working hard, they're providing for themselves, but they're still nonetheless frustrated because everything they seem to gather for themselves gives only a fleeting relief from the feeling of being dry and parched. You know the feeling. And it seems like the nature of humanity is when you try to satisfy it with something, each time you need a bigger thrill just to feel a little bit wetter in the throat. You know what I mean? It seems like after you go to Lake Geneva, the next year Lake Geneva doesn't cut it. You've got to go to Wisconsin Dells, and then that's not going to do it. You've got to go to Orlando, and after Orlando doesn't cut it, you've got to go to where? Hawaii. And Hawaii has been there, done that for some people. They're going to the Seychelles, or they're going to um, you know, really faraway places, places we've never even heard of, places that you have pictures of on your calendar in your kitchen, but you will in a million years never go. And even then... In a week of island paradise, you come home going, how come I'm still thirsty? Does the earth hold anything that will slake this thirst? It's as if God's saying, I don't even care how you got thirsty. I don't care what kind of thirsty you are. If you're thirsty and you'll own it, then I'm going to tell you where you're going to find true drink. Because that feeling you're having of everything's far away or everything is just not enough, where I'm going to direct you, God says, you're going to find water that's never going to cause you to be that thirsty again. You're going to find water that actually satisfies. And so he says, come everyone who thirsts. He doesn't want to discuss 
how you got there. He just wants you to come. What's interesting is he, dis- he discusses three different beverages here that he offers at this wonderful bar for the soul, okay? And, and I'm not going to make too much of a big deal of it, but I don't think I'm stretching. I'm joining many, many great scholars when we agree here together that these three beverages would have had tremendous symbolic meaning in the ancient world. And they all serve different purposes. The first beverage is water. And what does water do for us? When you're really thirsty, will a Coke really do it? I mean, I'm talking about if you just ran the, a marathon through a desert and then ate a bag of sand. You know that kind of thirsty? Is, is a cup of coffee going to do it for you? How about a nice milkshake? No. The only thing that really seems to make you go, ah, in a situation like that is pure, clean and preferably cold, ice-cold water. Water is the solvent of life. If you add a bunch of sugar or a bunch of other stuff, it might taste good, but it will not create the kind of refreshment we want. And so that's the first kind of satisfaction for thirst, which God is promising to us through whatever he's going to offer here, is you're going to find real refreshment. If you haven't felt this, ah, in a really long time, then he's going to lead you to a place where that is available. The second beverage he talks about is milk. Well, it's not the second in order, but it's the second I'm going to talk about. You know, if you just drink water all the time, how many of you guys, when you had your parents, you had your newborn, you just put a bunch of water in a baby bottle, and you're like, you're thirsty, aren't you? There you go, Junior. You just drink that water. What would that kid look like today? You know, like... A lot of serious problems because water may be the solvent of life, but how many calories does it have? Zero. It'd be the easiest job to write the nutritional facts on the side of a bottle of water. Water. Calorie zero. Good stuff, zero. It's got nothing for you except wetness. Milk, on the other hand, is a universal symbol of nourishment. We all give our children milk, if not from our own breast, at least from a cow's breast. We know that milk equals life, especially for those who are in a heavy period of of combusting everything and trying to grow. When we need to translate what we eat into serious cells, muscles, bone, hair, skeleton. You know what? When we're in that stage, milk is what fuels that growth. And I wonder if you feel like lately your fuel tank is always on empty. You're always tired. When people say, how are you doing? It's been years since you've answered that question positively. If you really don't want to have a conversation, you go, I'm doing all right. Get lost. But the real answer when somebody really cares about you, you know, they come up to you going, hey, look at me. How are you doing? And when you feel like they're really listen, it's been a long time since you've been able to say, dude, look at me. I'm doing awesome. I'm overflowing here. You need some energy because i got too much extra. You need a little hope. I've got tons of it. How, how long has it been since you felt a surplus of the kind of fuel that makes you want to live, not just wake up? I, I saw this wallpaper for the computer the other day and it said, goals, and, goals for the day, wake up, survive, sleep, and do it again tomorrow. Like, what? Why would you ever want to put that on the desktop of your computer screen to stare at every day and poison your soul. But the truth is, that's where a lot of people are today. 
That's what life feels like. Do you want to stop apologizing for your fatigue, for your stress, for the inadequacy of your supply? Do you want to tap into something where it feels like nitrous just got injected into your car? You guys know what nitrous oxide is, right? That's joy juice for a, for a driver. I dream someday of owning a car with a nitrous oxide system in it. And here's the last one. This one maybe some of you need to cut down on because this is how you've medicated all these things you're feeling. But if you drink lots of wine, are you going to get any less thirsty, honestly? Has wine solved anybody's problems for more than a night? Or if you're really serious, more than a morning. Has wine ever healed you? And yet wine universally, and especially in the ancient world, would have had the symbolic meaning of excitement or exhilaration. You don't break out wine for breakfast. You don't bring out the good wine to wash down your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, do you? If you do, you're an alcoholic. you got a problem. Come see me or someone more experienced in this thing. Wine is brought out when? When you're invited to someone's house for dinner, you bring a bottle of wine. When there's a party, you have wine. Jesus' first miracle was when they ran out of wine at a three-day wedding celebration, and the host was ashamed and panicking. And Jesus says, don't worry. Bring me that useless water, and I'll turn it into wine. Because nobody serves glasses of water at a party and go, hey, have fun. Here's some water. Totally, totally safe water. Wine is what makes you feel like laughing sometimes. It takes the edge off. It makes you feel like, you know what, I'm not going to just think about all the burdens I'm carrying. Because sometimes you just got to go, you know what, life is good. Let's toast each other and laugh a little bit. You got to cut off the spigot in, a, in, in good measure, right? You don't want too much. But wine symbolism is that life shouldn't just be about surviving and being nourished, but you should also have a joy associated with it. If you've gone your whole adult life being one of those people who doesn't smile much, that's not a function of your personality. I'm going to challenge you with that right now. Don't you ever get in the habit of dismissing it as, I am one of those people that in the old days they called phlegmatic. I'm just one of those people who doesn't smile. God didn't grace me with the muscles for smiling. No, no. That's your habit to explain away the fact that somewhere deep in your soul... There's been no wine. And on occasion, anything can make you smile, right? It's not like you're incapable of smiling. You just choose not to be around the things that trigger it. You choose instead to rehearse over and over the imprisoning bars of untruth that keep you in that cell of despair and melancholy. Don't ever think it's hardwired into your DNA. And that's why everyone around you should just understand, I'm not a smiley guy. You guys are all just frivolous and unserious. Please. The fruit of the Holy Spirit living in a person is joy. And you don't keep joy all bushled up like a secret. I have tons of joy. I'll just never share it with you. No. Joy bursts out. Joy is a little kid just doing this to a song while the rest of the world's going, I ain't even doing that, man. I'm way too old. I hate this church. Why do they make us do motions? And we're saying, God's not dead. He's alive, but I'm dead. I ain't turning. Joy 
is not a secret. It comes out, it bursts. And if you haven't had it, I'm not blaming you. I'm just telling you, stop calling it something else. Get some wine for your soul. So there we are. An amazing, generous invitation. If you're thirsty, come to me, and I'm going to tell you where you can get something that really wets the throat. It satisfies. But here's the condition. Listen diligently. Don't blow this off. Don't think you know what I'm going to say next. God says, really listen because you think you know, but you don't know. That's why you're still thirsty. You think you know, but listen. And then eat. Eat. It says you don't have to pay anything, but what you got to do is stop window shopping and take some of this into yourself. Do not just say, wow, that was an interesting message. Where are we going to eat? Eat this word before you eat your Easter lunch. Eat this word. Take it into yourself. Be convinced that somehow, not because I'm persuasive, but because God loves you, these words are meant for you to ingest, to live out, to be fueled by them. And then, as a result, you will find yourself not just moping about life, but you will find yourself delighting in food that is of highest quality, and abundant in quantity. Are we good so far? You curious? Well, here's everybody in Isaiah's time was very curious because as they're hearing this word of prophecy, they're like, all right, dude, you've got us. What is this? Well, there's an unexpected fulfillment to this wonderful hope that's held out, this promise. You know, not too long ago, um, I was going through a bit of a spiritual slump you know, we pastors do that on a very regular basis. Um, and the thing was, I was it's not like I was in all-out rebellion. I was just finding it hard to be the one who stokes everyone's fire. I was in this funky mood where, like, frankly, I wanted to run away from the stuff that God was doing. And it happened in the midst of, in fact, at the peak of this spiritual slump, that I was scheduled to go with Pastor Matt to visit Day and Esther Kwok at the Lawndale Christian Health Center. Now, the thing is, it's a great and exciting ministry. I was so moved that people at our church had given their lives to serve the poor in this way. And we were going to start with a wonderful lunch at the Kwok household. You guys remember Day and Esther Kwok? They went to Afghanistan on the mission trip and they reported. Well, I woke up that morning and everything in me was going, I totally do not feel like going. What legitimate excuse could I come up with that everyone would go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you should just stay. And I was thinking, i, I got to come up with something, an emergency something. Right? And I couldn't come up with anything. I didn't want to just flat out lie. So I was waiting for someone to call me. Just anybody go, uh, do you have time to talk? Yes, I do. Would you like to talk right at 12 to 2 today? You know, it was that kind of a thing. But God is so interesting. He would not give me that exit hatch. He said, you're going. And the only thing that drew me out was I like Matt, and I really like the quacks, and I wanted to be with them. I thought, if anything else, I'm going to have a, if nothing else, I'm going to have a good lunch with people I really like. How bad could that be? So I went with the worst possible attitude, right? After lunch, which was delightful, by the way, we went to the Lawndale Christian Health Center. You got to understand, I am a suburban boy, and uh, I'm an upper middle class suburban boy, I don't do inner city that comfortably. 
I don't have any street cred. If I walk around without people who live there, I will get beat up just for being there because I'm so out of place. I'm wearing an Argyle sweater vest today for crying out loud, right? So I'm already thinking, ah, oh, here we go. We're going to the city. I got to pretend like a good pastor that I'm really into this urban stuff. But the truth is I feel really out of place in those kinds of settings. Then we met this woman named Pat Herod. And she led us on a tour of the Lawndale Community Center and the, the health center. And as she was telling the story of how Lawndale ministry got started, there's something about this woman that was just infectious, contagious. She loved this. She had led this tour a million times, but it was like the first time. And when she told the story, there was like, it was clear emotion as she remembered those many years ago how a group of high school students answered the Lord's calling to own a burden for their neighborhood. A youth group started this amazing ministry that is now nationally recognized. And somehow, as I'm walking through the building and listening to her, God used that woman to awaken in me something that had fallen asleep. See, the thing is, I was thirsty, but the last thing I wanted to do was walk towards Jesus. Everything in me said, shut down, close the gate. Go inward. Avoid the people you associate with your religious life. And if I had done that, I would never have met Pat Herod. I would have never watched the quacks in their element. I would never have seen that dry heart quenched by the most unexpected setting, the place I wouldn't have been looking for deliverance from that slump. I think that's the spirit of this passage. Is, oh, you think that your thirst will be quenched by all the places you're running to. You're obeying your flesh that says run far from God because that's where relief will be found. And God says, no, no, the first clear thing he says, incline your ear and come to me. The reason you're thirsty is that's not what you've done. You haven't inclined your ear to me. You've listened to yourself. And how smart are you really? Could you possibly know better than me what your thirsty soul needs? Incline your ear to me. Stop listening to your friends who tell you to change your hair and go to, go to uh, Tuscany for, for a week with them. That's not the answer. I'm sorry if you've ever gone to Tuscany. I want to go there so badly. It's the first place I thought of. The answer isn't found listening to everyone else. It's not found listening to yourself. It's found inclining your ear to God. And then it says, come to me, which means you've been walking in a direction that takes you away from me. And the first step of recovering from thirst is to do an about face for whatever reason. And by the grace of God, I did an about face that day, not on my own volition, but I honored a commitment to keep an appointment I had. That much basic human integrity still remained, and I did it. And God met me in that simple act of being faithful to something on my calendar. God says, come to me, and the beginning of relief will be found. So there we are. Resist the natural impulse to run from God. Do the about face. And so everyone's going, okay, good, good. You've got this great promise, three kinds of drinks, deep satisfaction. We've turned around. We're coming towards God. What is it you're promising? Listen to what Isaiah says. 
Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Are you paying attention? Wouldn't you be like, huh? You're such a tease. You got all this oh, wine and milk and water for your soul. But now you're going, and your relief will come through a promise I made to a, a dude who died a bunch of years ago. Doesn't that sometimes feel like the way answers work in church? Come on, are you hungry? Do you feel dead? Come to this short-term mission trip. Poo in a hole you dug in the ground. Get malaria. Eat bad, smelly food. Don't bathe for a week, and you will find life. Don't you ever feel like the, the church has a specialty in lying and deceiving, bait-and-switch tactics? And here's this prophet. Oh, I got all kinds of good stuff for you. And it rests in this promise that I made a bunch of years ago to David because I loved him. But don't abandon ship just yet. That's why God says through Isaiah, listen diligently. What he was saying is pay attention. Don't check out early because if you follow me to the end of this message, you will realize I'm speaking the truth. This promise made to David is a reference to something that God prophesied to David when he was an up-and-coming star. And he says to David, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. In other translations, says one of your descendants to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who, who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's an awesome promise. You should be so lucky to hear words like that about after you're dead. And God is giving these words to David, and everyone who hears them has already got it figured out. They unra- unravel the code. Surely this must be Solomon that we're talking about. Because he was from David's own body, a descendant. Surely it must be Solomon because Solomon built the most glorious temple Israel had ever seen. If you've ever been to Willow Creek Community Church and seen their facility, you're like, whoa. I mean, it's a Christian tourist attraction. You see people just walking around taking pictures of the escalator. The ancient temple under Solomon would have made Willow Creek look like a strip mall. If not in size, then certainly in opulence. It was the most amazing, magnificent building designed for worship that the earth has ever seen. And so surely they thought it must be Solomon they're referring to. In fact, in Solomon's lifetime, he extended the borders of the kingdom even further. He even strengthened the power of the kingdom in economics and military might under his rule beyond what his father had done. Foreign kings and queens paid tribute to Israel under Solomon. And yet, where was Solomon's kingdom today? At the time that Isaiah is speaking, 
It lies in ruins. The people are completely conquered and beaten. They've been gut punched. Raise your hand if you've ever been gut punched. You know, the kind of punch where you got the wind knocked out of you. Anybody? I have. Raise them high. I want to see who's the, who the brawlers in there. Yeah. Okay, because you're looking for a security team soon. If you've ever been punched in the gut, it's a strange feeling to have your diaphragm struck so violently that it expels all the air and you can't breathe. It's a weird feeling. Had it happened to me several times. That's what the Israelites felt like as they're remembering this reference. They wouldn't have had such a huh moment because the promise made to David was folklore. It was legendary among the Israelites. As soon as Isaiah spoke it, everyone would be going, oh, not that again. Of all the things to mention, why would you mention that great promise in the midst of this toilet bowl of our lives? Do you see the temple anywhere? It's lying in ruins back in Jerusalem. Do you see King David's might, Solomon's might, his gold? It's all filling the coffers of foreign kings. This is a big scam. God made a promise he never kept. In fact, in Psalm 89, 49, a Levite living around this time in exile wrote this word of complaint and doubt to God. And I love the way Eugene Peterson's paraphrase called the message words it. So where is the love? See, Black Eyed Peas were the first ones to ask that question. So where is the love you're so famous for, Lord? What happened to your promise to David? Because we all rehearsed it as children. We learned it in Hebrew school. We know what you promised, what was supposed to happen. Where is this great king who would reign over Israel forever? Where is he? That's a valid question. And it's a question that was in the heart collectively of all of Israel for centuries as they died of thirst, wondering when will he come. What's amazing is instead of through the prophets, instead of from the pulpit of a great temple building, many centuries later, in a small house, in a neighborhood in a town called Nazareth, a young girl named Mary would in the middle of the night be visited by an angel, and this angel would whisper to her these words. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called what? The Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you get that? What this angel is whispering to one solitary young girl is that what you're about to do is give birth to the baby that has been awaited by Israel ever since King David walked the earth. It's important in Matthew 1 that the genealogy which we all gloss over Oh, he begat, he begat, he descended from. It's boring, but you realize it establishes that Jesus actually descended from the lineage and the household of David. It wasn't figurative, it was literal. Out of David's own flesh came a descendant who would be to God like a son, who would go through great trouble, flogged and beaten by the rods of men, but God would never remove his love from him. And he would establish him in the place of David's throne. And over this king's kingdom, there would never be an end. Every kingdom, every administration that has ever stood on the earth 
has passed, so will the United States. The greatness of this nation is not permanent or irreversible. I think that our children will not grow up in an American-dominated global setting. In fact, I would almost bank all my money and all my future on that prophecy. Well, not prophecy, prediction. (laughs) Pretty close to prophecy. You'll see. Every kingdom dies. Every king is replaced. But this king, ever since he walked the earth, has stood the test of time. What king do you know who, when he's alive, has 120 followers and 2,000 years later has a billion followers? What kingdom can you describe to me that is like that? I challenge you. Name one kingdom that caused people to quake in fear and still reigns today with that kind of power. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this longing which Israel felt, and he is the fulfillment of the thirst in your own soul. The thirst you're feeling is not going to be satisfied by doing something or going somewhere or hearing some words. That thirst you feel will only start to be quenched when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. It has always been the case. It will always be the case that Jesus Christ is the one who offers us the living water that having drunk it, we will never thirst again. If you doubt me, I'm going to ask you, whatever else you've been drinking, has it ever been described as living water, eternal satisfaction, never disappointed you, never left you feeling like, wow, dude, Maui was just so much better the last time we went. Have we changed? Has Maui changed? What's happening to us that the old excitements are leaving us numb. What's changing is that we're trying to drink that which is not drink and eat that which is not food and then wondering at the hunger that persists. Through David and this promise, Jesus came. And all who find Jesus find true satisfaction. And so he said while he was on this earth that he was the bread of life, that he was the living water. There's no mistaking the significance of that. So let me close with this last observation. A generous invitation has been extended. You know you're thirsty. And what you need is refreshment and nourishment, fuel. You need some inspiration, some excitement in your life. And all these things are available through this promise now fulfilled in Jesus. That leaves you with a very important decision to make. And I I give this invitation to you, whether you're a Christian or whether you've never trusted Jesus. This decision faces every one of us this morning. Knowing that Jesus is the true living water, what will you do about that right now? 
You've got to make a choice. You will choose either to walk towards this Jesus or you will choose to walk in a direction away from Jesus. There is no neutral place. There's no holding pattern. You are either walking towards him or you are walking away from him. Those are the only two possibilities. Theologically, philosophically, logically, there is no third option. So which will you choose? Here's what the Word of God says, and it offers a powerful motivation as I wrap this up. This is my plea to you, and this is God's plea to you about how you ought to respond this morning. The first motivation is this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Listen. The first motivation for responding to God is urgency. It's this idea that you strike while the iron's hot. You know, my son asked my wife to cook some noodles for him because he was starving the other day, and then he started playing Guitar Hero. And Jeannie kept calling out, Noah, your noodles are ready. He kept going, all right, all right. But he wanted to finish the couple songs in his playlist, so he finished them. And when he came to the kitchen, the noodles were a little bloated, Real dried out, you know, you know how all the, the soup just gets soaked into the noodles, and you're left with something that looks like mouse intestines? It's very, I know what mouse intestines look like. i very intimate with mouse intestines. And, uh, you know, it's unappetizing. And you know why that happened? Because he didn't strike while the iron was hot. It was still there. It was just different. And here's the thing. It's not suggesting that God's going to play peekaboo with you. I'm here now, but later on I'm going to hide from you. It's not that at all. God wants to be found by you. He wants you to find him, and he's finding you right now. But here's the thing. Right now, at this moment, before you've forgotten the message, because I promise you, you'll forget this. The reason we have a podcast is not for those who never heard, but for those who forgot. Okay? You will forget this sermon by the time you eat your first chip over there. Do you understand that? I hope you don't, but I know you will. Never mind that a week of my life went into it. But the point is, that's why it's so important that you don't go, I'll deal with that later. I will process all that later because I know you won't. You will barely remember what you're supposed to process. You'll be thinking about the fact that Duke beat West Virginia. Hallelujah! I jumped from 450th in the Harvest Bible Chapel pool to 45th last night because of Duke. That's what you're going to be thinking about after the sermon. Do you know when is the time to decide to act? To follow the promptings of your heart is when they are being given now. Ladies, let me give you a, a, a hint here, okay? When a man is on his knees and saying, will you marry me? You don't say to him, How long do I have to decide? No, 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 no. That's that's a no right there. If you have doubts, just break it out right now. Something's wrong there. If this dude is so misfired, and if you're that full of second guessing, something's wrong. you got to be able to say, dude, I've been waiting for you, you dummy. And if you make him wait too long for the answer, he'll be like, listen, I'm getting old here. There are other fish in the sea. Yes or no? 
What's interesting about jobs these days, because they're so rare, they know that you're, you're going to bite at every good offer. They don't say, oh, why don't you take a week to think about it? They go, you got to tell us today if you want this job. And you're like, I just came with a nice new suit on for an interview. I can't make a decision. i got to talk to my wife. And they're like, no, you need to tell us right now. Are you serious or are you playing around with us? And it's like that sometimes with God. He says, you're going to think about postponing this moment of inspiration where your heart is tugging you towards something. You feel it. There's no denying it. Right at this moment, some of you are feeling God just going, yeah. He's pulling you toward himself. And something about this moment will not come again, perhaps for a very long time for you. This is the moment to act while he is near and while he may be found, because your heart may take you in very different directions later on. Here's another motivation. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The second motivation is leniency. It's saying, look, God is not the way most of us make him out to be. God gets a pretty bad rap. A lot of people visualize God as being this vindictive guy who tricks us. He goes, hey, everybody with an unregistered firearm, come on down to the police station and turn him in and we'll give you money. And instead he's going to slap cuffs on you and go, ah, dummy, you fell for it, you illegal gun-owning jerk. That's what we think God's like. He's tricking us to confess stuff so he can punish us. That must be his agenda. If that's what you think of God, I have no idea where you got that notion from, but I can assure you of this much, you didn't get it from the Bible. The Bible is filled with examples and testimonials from God himself saying, this is not a joke. If you come to me, you will not find cold justice you will find compassion and abundant pardon. You know why I think we think that way of God? Because we suspect that at the end of the day, God is pretty much like us. He is totally not like us. In all these important ways, God is everything we are not. He's not vindictive. He's not cold and calculating. He doesn't hold a grudge like us. And if you think that's what you're going to get with God, you have, le- you have listened to the whispers of God's enemy who would delight to keep you far from him. There's a voice whispering to some of you today that you can never return to God because you've been through the mud too much. You've swam too long in the sewers to ever be accepted into God's society again. Your stains go too deep. There's no solvent in, he- in heaven that can wash that much dirt away You are used goods. You know who's telling you that? It's Satan. It's the one who distorts truth so that he will have plenty of company in isolation from God. I don't know if I was going to make this point, but I'm going to make it. Partly because Jeannie said they need some time for the Easter eggs, but partly because this is important. Listen. Here's what Satan reminds me of. I want to use a little junior high... um, Analogy here. It's like you're a little girl named Mary. And you have a real big crush on a boy named Peter. And so you confide to your friend Martha. Hey, Martha, i got to tell you a secret. I really like Peter. 
What you don't know is Martha used to have a crush on Peter too. And when she poured out her heart, Peter said, "Uh, it ain't never going to happen, Martha. You're gross. And he shut her down hard. And so Martha bears a little bitterness. If I can't have him, no one will. And so she smiles to Mary. Oh, Mary, I'm gonna, I'll give you some advice and all that. I'll go talk to him. I'll see. I, I, I know Peter real well. I'll let him know you like him, and I'll see what he says. But Martha doesn't do that, does, he? does she? Instead, she whispers lies to Mary. Oh, Mary, I'm sorry. I told him about your feelings, and he totally thinks you're a troll. He says he, he vomits a little bit every time he walks past your locker. There's no chance. But the truth is, Peter has already told Martha, hey, what's the deal with your friend Mary? She's kind of cute, and I really like her. If she would just give me a little bit of a hint she likes me, I'd be right there. Do you see what's going on? The bitter, chastised, rejected one, off in a corner saying, if I can't have him, no one will. And I will whisper every lie in the book that will make you think that if you go to him, you will be embarrassed and rejected. You will not. In the, at the foot of the cross of Jesus, there is never, ever rejection. All who come, the language is unmistakable throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. The expansive Greek word, all, everyone who will come in faith will be accepted No one will be rejected. No matter where you've journeyed, this is home for you. Let me give you one final motivation. Where is another God like you? I'm sorry, this one right here. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, God says. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Do you know how often that verse is taken out of context and misinterpreted? We quote this verse when we say, God just seems random to me. I don't know. God's ways are higher than our ways, I guess. He's inscrutable, unknowable. He's like an old Chinese scholar. who you, He says stuff like, water is like a rock. And you're like, What? That's what we think God is like. He has all these ridiculous riddles and truisms that don't seem to make sense. So whenever we don't understand life, we just go, God's ways are higher than our ways. That's not the spirit of this verse at all. You've missed the boat if you think that's what it means. What this verse means is it's about supremacy. It's about saying that there is a way you try to live before by your wits, your thoughts, your words, your ways. You try to make a life for yourself. And look where it's gotten you. It's left you thirsty. But if you enter into this journey with me, God's promises, he will introduce you to a superior way, a superior thought, one which you cannot grasp yet yourself. That a way of living that if I were to describe it to you before you enter the relationship with Jesus, it would make no sense to you. The reason some of you are so perplexed by the teachings from this pulpit are that you have not entered into a relationship with Jesus. So what I'm preaching is nonsense. It will never work in this world. And you're right, it won't work without Jesus. But when you enter a relationship with him, he will reformat the operating system in your heart. 
And this new software will be installed and it will start to make sense. Weird programs like, if you want to be great, be the servant of all. Say, what? Whoever wants to keep his life should lose it. What? This is the anti-software. This is a virus. Unless you have Jesus. Spiritual warfare. I've just been blinded by the enemy. My glasses just literally fell off my face and broke. I don't know what's going on, but thank you. I'm not going to do that because that's going to be distracting. What he's saying is if you enter into this relationship with me, I'm going to give you a way of living that will seem so ridiculous and foolish, but if you will go with me in the power I give you to swallow your nausea reflex, to think this is not going to work, I will show you that it does work. You have no idea how rich I've gotten giving it away. And ask anybody who has followed the principles of Jesus Christ. Ask them if they've truly put them into practice with faith and spiritual power. Has it steered them wrong? Has it ruined their life? It hasn't. This is a superior way. And if you feel like you have made a mess of things, God invites you today to find this better way. Find it. You'll see what it'll do to your life. So let me just summarize for those of you who feel a little bit drowned in all the detail. A generous invitation is given to you. If you're thirsty and you know that you are, come to God and find drink that will satisfy And this drink, as you listen and incline your ear, listen carefully, you will discover isn't in a thing, a religion, a way of living. This satisfaction comes through a person, a descendant of King David named Jesus, who not only died for your sins, but promises you bread that will give eternal life and water that will last forever. And if you will hear and do an about face and walk towards him, not delay, not put it off, but respond to him now while he is near, while he may be found. You will not find condemnation or rejection. You will find abundant pardon and compassion from a father. And entering into that relationship with this warm welcome, you will find your life now set on a more excellent way. A way that in the past life didn't seem to make any sense, but will now be for you totally clear and totally superior to the way that you once lived. This is God's invitation for us. It's not a challenge, it's not a rebuke, but it's God's invitation to you. What will you do about it this morning? Remember this, however you got to the place of thirst, Jesus is the only satisfaction. And with those words, I will close with the final two verses of our passage. I won't preach on them, I will just read them as a blessing and in the spirit of a prayer over you. 
as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Let's go to God in prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.